Let's open our Bibles to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at this entire chapter today and a few other chapters. I don't have a message guide for you today. Um, So you're going to use your Bible. Your Bible is your ultimate message guide, right? So, you know, when you come, I would encourage you to bring your, bring your Bible. Uh, even though we do a message guide most weekends, you know, uh, it's good to take notes. So, come to learn. I'm not here to entertain you as much as I love to entertain people. Uh, if you want to be entertained by me, come to my house. We'll sit down and have a cup of coffee together, Okay. But when we come together here, we're not coming to get entertained. We're coming, the Word of God says, to be equipped. This is part of not only our worship, but it's also part of our discipleship. And I think the ultimate form of worship, I believe, is to live the life of a disciple. Because worship isn't something we do once or twice a week. It is the totality of our life before God. It's our lifestyle. So Ephesians chapter 2, let's begin in verse 1. Father, we just thank you today for your word. We ask that you open our hearts and open our minds. By your spirit, God, teach us. Lord, let this be, as you said yourself, Lord Jesus, let this be spirit and let it be life to us. And we give you all the glory and all the honor for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Boy, that right there is something. I want us to really consider that verse. And you he made alive. You who were dead in trespasses and sin. You who were dead in trespasses and sin, he made alive. Where were we? What was our state? What was our condition before he made us alive? We were dead in trespass and sin. And he made us alive. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, in which you once walked. How did we once walk? We once walked dead in trespasses and sin. That's how we once walked. Once, you once walked, is a past tense It's not a present tense. You once walked. Remember when we looked at Ephesians a couple of weeks ago, Ephesians 5? And Paul makes a statement in Ephesians 5. He says, you once were darkness, past tense, but now you are light in the Lord. Well, here he says, you once walked according to the course of this world, dead in trespass and sin. 
And the spirit that once worked in you was the spirit of the evil one. That same spirit still works, now works, Paul says, in the sons of disobedience. So the sons of disobedience, they are still walking dead in sin and trespass. The sons of disobedience are still in that state of death and sin. Amen? But that's not who you are if you are where? In Christ. Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves. Now Paul says here, he's including everybody, we all. He's including himself and all of us. And all men, past, present, and future, born of the first man, Adam. We all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Why? Because we all once walked in death, sin, disobedience. Why did we conduct ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of of the flesh and of the mind? Why did we do that? He tells us right here at the end of this verse, because we were by nature, what? Children of wrath. If we are by nature children of wrath, do we have a choice as to whether we're going to walk in death, sin, disobedience? Do we have a choice if we are children of wrath? If we're children of wrath, we don't have a choice. We walk that way, why? Because that's our nature. Does my dog have a choice to be anything but a dog, even if I teach him good tricks? No, he's still a dog. Why? Because that's what he is by nature. So this is why the gospel is not learning how to modify your behavior so that you're not a son of disobedience anymore. The gospel is coming to realize that by nature, I'm dead in my sin, and the only one that can help me is the one who did help me. (laughs) I couldn't help myself. What am I going to do? I have a dilemma here. I'm in a hole I can't get out of. I'm stuck in a place I can't get loose from. Can a dead man raise himself? Can he? No. Nowhere in the Bible do we see dead men raising themselves. The Spirit of God... The power of God raised up the dead. And until Christ came along, even those who were raised from the dead, guess what? They died again. But This is why the Bible says Christ is the first fruits of resurrection. He's not the first person that was ever raised from the dead, but he was the first person ever resurrected unto eternal life to never die again. There's a huge difference between resuscitation from the dead and resurrection from the dead. There have been cases of men being resuscitated from the dead. But until Jesus Christ came out of that tomb, there had never been a case of a man being resurrected from the dead. The gospel is, you're not going to just be resuscitated one day, 
The gospel is you already, if you are right now in Christ, you live in the power of his resurrection, and you have the hope that this corruption will put on incorruption. This mortality, this flesh today that's 50 years old, one day will put on immortality. We're going to stop counting birthdays one day. Not because we're dead, but because we are eternal. (laughs) We're not going to be counting time in heaven. We're eternal beings. This is our hope. This is the promise we have in Christ. This is the gospel. You once were sons of disobedience, and you had to walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of this world, because that was the spirit of death that worked in you. He was the one that had the power of death. Hebrews 2 says Christ came and took from him, took from the devil, took from Satan who had the power of death. He took that away from him. Why? Because he conquered death. Christ conquered death. Satan no longer has the power of death. He doesn't have it anymore. But when we were dead in trespasses and sin, we had no choice but to walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. We once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of our mind, because that was our nature. This is what Paul says in Romans 7. He says, "Ah, you know, I was a Pharisee and thought I had everything under control. He said, but then I realized that even though in my mind I wanted to obey, there was something, a law at work in my members called the law of sin and death. The law of sin worked in my members, and I could not help myself. Who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God. For Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ can and will deliver you from this body of death by grace through faith. He will. Not only will He deliver you from this body of death, He will change your nature. Peter says it this way We have become partakers of the divine nature. Where? Where do we become partakers of the divine nature? In Christ. All right, let's go on. This is real important. If you have a pencil, a highlighter, you should highlight that word, nature there. Who were by nature children of wrath just as the others. We once were children of of wrath. We once were by nature children of wrath, but we're not anymore. Look at verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us. What did John say? We love God because God first loved us. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? I am. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he says it again, Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
Now, I took out all the little prepositional phrases in that sentence, and I got right down to the meat of what Paul is saying. If you have a highlighter, you can highlight your Bible, and here's what Paul is saying. But God, even when we were dead, raised us up and made us sit together in Christ. But God, even when we were dead, made us alive and raised us up. He adds all that other stuff just to... To, to give us a little more detail, to, to fill it out a little more so we can understand the, the glory and the majesty of what God has done through Jesus Christ. But God, even when we were dead, made us alive and raised us up and made us sit together. That word made in verse 6 is not a word that means, parents, have you ever dealt with your disobedient child? And you said, now I want you to sit in that chair and I don't want you to get up. Do you understand me? <laughs> yes, d- 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 daddy. <laughs> That's not the kind of made. That's not what that word means right there. God didn't make us. He made us. In other words, he prepared a place for us. He set aside and prepared a place. He made a place for us to sit with him in heavenly places. He didn't force us to. He privileged us to. I really want you to get this. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Why is it by grace? Because when we were dead, he made us alive. We didn't do it. He did it. And raised us up together and made us sit together. He prepared a place for us to sit with him in heavenly places. Not because we desired it, not because we worked for it, not because of anything we've done. He did that in his grace and in his mercy and in his power and in his spirit. By the work of Christ, he did that. He made a place for us to sit to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 7, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us. Where? In Christ Jesus. It's real important that you highlight that phrase, in Christ Jesus, because there is no kindness of God shown anywhere else except in Christ Jesus. It rains on the just and the unjust, but I'm going to tell you what, it's kind of like the story of Sodom. And Abraham bargained with God. Well, God, if there's 50 righteous, will you spare the city? Okay, well, God, if there's 25 right, you know, he gets all the way down. It rains on the just and the unjust, but it's the grace of God. That causes the rain to come. And I'm going to tell you what. The grace comes on the unjust because of the just. Because we're here. God uses everything, the just and the unjust, to bring about his plan and his purpose. You can see that. 
as he used pagan kings, godless, cruel pagan kings to achieve his purpose. That's, that's, that's the grace of God. And, and in using those godless pagan kings, do you realize we benefited today? We are benefiting from that today. What he did with Nebuchadnezzar, we're benefiting from that today. Not just what Daniel did, not just what those guys in the furnace, his three friends did, but, but even how God used that pagan king, we're benefiting from that today. Why? Because this is all part of the plan and the purpose of God. It's, it's one stream that flows. Yeah, we're in this time-space continuum right now, but it, what God's plan and purpose is, it is not just for, to be counted in thousands of years. It is an eternal plan. It is an eternal purpose. We may be counting it in thousands of years right now, but the plan and the purpose, the beginning of it and the end of it, is an eternal plan. You are, church, part of an eternal plan of God. That didn't begin at your birth. It began before creation. Because the scripture says Christ is the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundations of the world. You are part of an eternal plan that began before creation. That began before there was the first man. That began before there was the first sun, moon, or star flung out into the galaxies and the universe that we know today. When there just was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living in perfect unity, in perfect communion, in perfect fellowship with one another, perfectly complete in one another, you were part of the eternal plan of God. If that's not true, we would not be here today. If that's not true, then we better join the evolutionary camp because we're just an accident and we are not an accident. We didn't evolve. We didn't get here accidentally. No, sir. You are part of the eternal plan and purpose of the Creator God. You are. And that's good news. That is good news. God is not unaware of who you are and what's happening in your life. You say, well, it sure does seem like sometimes he is. Well, I promise you he's not. Child of God, he's not left you. He's not forsaken you. He's not turned his face away from you. He's not turned his back on you. I don't care how dark your road is. I don't care how deep and how dark the valley is you might be walking through. God knows. God is aware. Say, well, I can't understand it. Stop trying to understand it and start trusting See, that's our problem. We're trying to understand too much instead of trusting. Well, I could trust a lot more if I could understand it. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't, I promise you. How do you know, Pastor? Because no one else in human history has has done that. So what makes you different? It's kind of like the rich man and Lazarus. You know, and the rich man dies and he goes down to, um, to the fires of Gehenna. And there's Lazarus, the beggar, in Father Abraham's arms. And there's this great gulf between them. And Lazarus, the rich man, realizes he's made a big mistake. He, he should have trusted God. He should have been a more godly man. 
He shouldn't have been so full of himself and so full of, of, of disbelief. And he's telling Father Abraham, look, if you'll just let me go back, well, forget me going back. If you'll just send someone back from the dead and tell my brothers what's happened to me, they'll believe. And you know what Jesus said? These are the words of Jesus in this parable. He said, even though one returned from the dead, they will not believe if they do not believe Moses and the prophets. You know why? You won't believe just because you understand everything, because you have everything you need to believe right now. You have the inspired word of God. You've got the scripture. You've got God that has done everything he can do for you in sending his son. What's left is for us to trust. We've got to trust him, church. Now, God may, in his grace and mercy, he may choose to explain to you some things, but I would submit to you that many things he's not going to explain to you because he's under no obligation to. But here's the kicker. You are under an absolute obligation to trust him. He is under absolutely no obligation to explain anything to you. Is that unf- How many of you think that's unfair? You don't have to raise your hand. If we were honest, we would all in our hearts say, well, that seems a little unfair. That's another thing we need to kind of get over. We're all hung up on fairness here. God, it's not about fairness. This is God, okay? This is God. Now, what do we know about God? For instance, Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, plans for good and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now, if you remember several months ago, I did a whole teaching on Jeremiah 29, because Jeremiah 29 is a letter that was written to those children of Israel that were carried captive to Babylon. And Jeremiah 29 was a letter that the prophet Jeremiah wrote to them and sent to Babylon. And we like to quote Jeremiah 29, 11, but we don't want to read the verses before it that give us the condition of the, of the promise. And you know when the promise is going to be fulfilled? The promise will be fulfilled after the captivity, after God has judged the nation, and all that God said would come upon the nation would come upon the nation. And you know what all those Jews thought that got carried away? God, that's not fair. Do you know God could care less whether they thought it was fair or not? God says, this is what's going to happen. And you need to trust, child of God, that my plan is a good plan, that my future for you is a good future. My hope for you is a good hope. It doesn't matter whether you understand why I'm doing what I'm doing. Don't say, Jeremiah did this. Don't say the Babylonians did this. He says over and over in that letter, I did this to you. God says, hey, children of Israel, I did this to you. I was the one that caused you to be carried away captive. I did this to you. Now, can we be a people of God that will trust that if God chooses to do something that we don't understand, that might inconvenience us, that might just not, maybe it might even more than inconvenience us, it might just be downright painful for us. In the midst of that painful dealing, that bitter dealing that Ruth talks about, can we be a people that will trust God in spite of it? See, this is, this is what faith is. This is what we're called to.
For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Why did God give us this gift? Why did God do this? Why did he extend this grace? He did it that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ. Remember what I said? Everything boils down to one thing. If you want to know why anything is done by God, we can, we can, y'all have that, y'all have that shortcut thing on your computer, you know, or on your phone, it says the shortcut. We can go through all the steps or we can just put that little shortcut button on there and just click on that shortcut and it just takes us directly to where we ultimately want to go. Here's the shortcut for God. Instead of asking why, wondering why, here's the shortcut. God does everything for one reason and one reason alone, and that is for his glory. That's the shortcut. God, why did you? I did it for my glory. But I can't see how you could get glory. You're not me. God would say, but that, that's right. You can't see because you're not me. But, but Lord, I just don't see. Oh, there you go again. You're not me. But rest assured, everything I have done, I have done for my glory. Now, we don't like that because that seems kind of narcissistic. But we can't compare God to humans, right? God is God. He is God. So here's what Jeremiah says. How can the clay say to the potter? Paul quotes in Romans. Well, the clay can't say to the potter. Because the potter has the right to do whatever he wants to do. Why has God poured out this grace? Why has God given us this gift? Ultimately for his glory. Do we benefit? You better believe we do. (laughs) How do we benefit? Are you kidding me? He has given us the life of His Son. Do, you, do we forget where we were? Where were we? Well, let's see what Paul says. And you, who were dead in trespasses and sin, He made alive. Oh yeah, I was dead in trespasses and sin. And God in His grace gave me a gift and made me alive in Christ. Wow. Are you kidding? Do we benefit? We absolutely benefit. Even though it's all for his glory, there is the grace of God. We get to benefit. We get to experience the reality of his love, of his joy, of his peace, of his kindness, of his goodness, of his faithfulness, his gentleness. And those things are produced even in us and through us. That manifestation of his life, God privileges us to be branches bearing the fruit of his spirit for all the world to see. To what end? To his glory. To his glory. Let's go on. For by grace, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship. 
created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are His workmanship. We are the product of His hands, of His power, of His working. He created us, where? In Christ. For good works, which God prepared. Whose good works are they? Whose good works? Are they our good works or are they God's good works? What, how does God view our good works? Isaiah tells us this. They are as filthy rags. Any way you want to interpret filthy rags, you, you don't want to go there. Okay. So the good works God prepared are not our good works. They're His good works. This is the difference. This is why the skeptic will say, well, so are you telling me that all of those Buddhists who are over there doing all of these wonderful things or the, the Hindu guru who's out there washing the, the lepers in, the, in, in the, the river there in India and, and doing, are you telling me that God's going to let them go to hell when they, well, I'm not going to tell you God's going to let them go to hell. I'm going to tell you they deserve to go to hell just like all of us do apart from Jesus Christ. Because their good works don't mean anything. Because they're not good works. (laughs) If they come out of death and sin, how can it be good? If we are by nature, see here's where it's important for us, church, to understand where all of this originates from. If we're just human beings living here on this planet, choosing to do good works one day and choosing not to do good works another day, and one day I'm acceptable to God and another day I'm unacceptable to God based on what I do, we might as well throw that Bible away right there. Because we've just, that's not the gospel. That's not what God describes about the created order of things and the reality of what has happened as a result of the fall. Now, the reality is, it doesn't matter how many of our own good works and how good it may look to us in the flesh. To God, it is filthy and unacceptable, and he will have nothing to do with it whatsoever. The only good work that's acceptable to him are the good works that he has prepared where? In Christ. And the only way I can walk in those good works is to be where? In Christ. So my acceptability to God has nothing to do with how I modify my behavior or manage my sin. It has everything to do with where I am living and whose nature I have come to possess. This is why it says it is by grace and it is the gift of God. How do I access this grace and this gift? Through faith. I have to trust him. If I'm trusting my good works, I'm not trusting him. If I'm depending on all the things I'm doing, I'm depending on the wrong thing. Not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for Good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Why did God prepare those works that we should walk in them? Do we have a responsibility? We absolutely do. We have a responsibility to walk in the things God has prepared for us. 
Let's go to 1 Peter. Now, this will be a two-part message at least. Because I'm not going to try to finish this in ten minutes. And there's some place I'm going to go with this, and I can't do it in ten minutes. First Peter chapter 2. Let's begin in verse 1. Now, remember where we just came from. For you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. What were we once? We were all once sons of disobedience, right? We once walked according to the conduct of this world, of the lust of our flesh and of our mind. We once were that, right? That's what we once were, dead in trespasses and sin. But in the grace of God, what has God done for us? He has made us alive who were dead. He has raised us up. He has seated us together with him in heavenly places in Christ. This is who we are now, right? First, first Peter chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, all evil speaking. That, those are just descriptors for the, the, the conduct that Paul was talking about back in Ephesians. The, this is not how we're supposed to walk. Do you all see that? Don't, don't be filled with malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, evil speaking. Lay those aside. As newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. How do we grow? We grow by the milk of the word. Now, you hear my, you hear my grandbaby out there crying? He drinks primarily milk right now. He does have cereal and he loves it, you know? And so you begin to see this progression. When he was born, he drank milk exclusively. Now he's starting to eat a little bit of cereal along with his milk. He's already, we've captured him on video numerous times, as we're sitting there eating, whether it be beefsteak or brisket or whatever, I mean, every fork that goes up, he's watching that. And you know, it's just a matter of time. When he's, he's not going to be drinking milk anymore. He's going to be eating steak, right? Because that's what happens as children grow up. But they start out on milk, right? So Peter says... As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. If we wouldn't have given Ephraim milk as a newborn babe, he wouldn't be grown as he is right now. But, but when he's five years old, he's not going to still be drinking a baby bottle and drinking milk exclusively. This, this is what the writer of Hebrews says to those Hebrews. You guys ought to be teachers by now. But you are so immature, you're still sucking on a baby bottle. But you're old enough that you should be eating meat and teaching others. Now, if that was true back in the day, do you think it could be true today? Oh, yes. Yes. And part of the problem is, we don't rightly divide the word of truth and we don't really understand the gospel of Christ and so we're stuck in immaturity mode. 
And quite frankly, a lot of people want to stay there because they, they just like being a kid. You guys ever know anyone when you graduated from high school and there was that guy, I think every high school has at least one of them. There's that guy who is 35 years old, but he's still hanging out with the high school kids. It's like he's still in high school because he doesn't want to grow up. The Bible says, don't be like that. We, we, we are meant to grow up. We are meant to come to maturity. So we lay aside these things. We, we need to desire the pure milk of the word that we may grow. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. If you have not tasted that the Lord is gracious. In other words, if you have not become a partaker of the divine nature, you're not going to desire even the milk. Why would you? Well, the reason you wouldn't is because you still possess a nature of death and sin. And you still, because of your nature, are walking in these other ways. But he's saying, if you have tasted the graciousness of God, if you're calling yourself a believer, then begin to desire the pure milk of the word that you may begin to grow. Lay aside these things that are consistent with the old nature and begin to walk consistent with the new nature. What Peter is saying here is the same thing Paul says, put your money where your mouth is. Don't tell me what you are, show me what you are. It's what James is saying. He says, you can tell me you have faith, but I'm going to show you my faith by my works. Our life should declare our faith, not just our mouth. Our mouth can say anything, but our life will always speak the truth, right? You guys with me? Verse 4, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious. Coming to who? Coming to Christ. As to a living stone, rejected indeed by men but chosen by God and precious. You also, verse 5, as living stones. So come to Christ. The living stone, you also as living stones. Guess what mountain we were all cut out of? (laughs) The same mountain. It's the mountain that Daniel speaks of in Daniel chapter 2, verses 34 and 35. King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He's freaking out because he's had this vision. Head of gold, shoulders and arms of silver, chest and belly of brass, Legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. What is this thing? None of his magicians could tell him what it was. Somebody says, I think there's a guy down in prison who might be able to tell you. Uh, No, that was Joseph. (laughs) But Daniel was in the house in the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. And so Daniel comes, and they go get Daniel, and they said, Daniel, we need somebody to interpret this dream. And he comes, he says, all right. He said, here's what it means. And he says, these are kingdoms. You're the kingdom of gold. There's a lesser one, a kingdom of silver. There's another one, a kingdom of brass. And then you have this thing, he describes it. And then he says in verse 34, and then you saw, O king, a stone cut out of a mountain, not with hands, And this stone ultimately becomes so huge that it fills the earth. Well, you know who that stone is, right? It's Christ. This is the living stone. 
wasn't created by the hands of man. It wasn't created by the will of man. This is a stone that was cut out, not by the hands of man. This is Christ, the eternal one, the Alpha and the Omega. Peter says, Coming to him as to a living stone, you also as living stones, if we have not been cut out of the same mountain, we do not qualify to become the building of God. God will not use any other kind of stone to build his holy habitation, to build his temple except living stone. John 3, Jesus is walking around the temple and they're so impressed with the temple. Look at this, Jesus. Look at this beautiful temple here. And Jesus says, tell you what, tear this thing down in three days and I'll rebuild it. Tear it down and I'll rebuild it in three days. They said it took 46 years to build this temple. The scripture goes on and says what they didn't understand is that Jesus spoke of himself. He is. Christ is the third temple. And we are the living stones being built, a habitation of God in the spirit, Peter says, Paul says. But I'm going to tell you what, you cannot become the habitation unless you're cut out of the same mountain that that stone was cut out of, that that pagan king saw in his vision. It's not just any kind of stone, it's a living stone. It is the chief cornerstone. It is the stone that the builders rejected. Why? Let's read on. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God in through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. Do you believe this morning, church? Is he precious to you this morning? Is he precious to you? Now, that's an important question. Is he just some guy that you're curious about? Is he some anomaly, some phenomenon that the world seems fascinated with? Or is he precious to you? Is he precious to you? Therefore, to you who believe, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, that word disobedient there is is deceptive. Because our concept of disobedience is, is not the same concept this, this word is conveying to us. A better understanding, a better way for us to understand this word is this way. But to those who are disbelieving, to disbelieve is to be disobedient. To be disobedient is to disbelieve. The sin in the garden in the very beginning The sin was not that they ate the fruit. They ate the fruit because they didn't believe. It wasn't the act of their disobedience. It was their unbelief that led them to their act of disobedience. He's not just saying here, but to those who don't act right. mm -mm. To those who disbelieve. To you who believe, he is precious. To you who disbelieve. What is he? He is the stone which the builders rejected, 
He has become the chief cornerstone. But because of your disbelief, he has become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He will either be precious or he will be offensive. To many in Jesus' day, he was offensive. Why? Because they disbelieved. It is no different today, church. Today, Jesus Christ is either going to be precious because you believe, or he's going to be offensive because you disbelieve. Do you believe? Is he precious? The world is full of people who don't believe. He's offensive to them. Now, we shouldn't get angry with them because he's, he's offensive to them and they disbelieve because that's their nature. So what's the answer? Do we need to become really good at arguing and trying to convince them to believe? No. Because your arguments and your persistence in trying to talk them into believing in Jesus, you may get them there mentally, but you'll never change their nature through an intellectual argument. Now, God can use an intellectual argument. We need to be people who rightly divide the word of truth. We need to be workmen who are not ashamed, who know how to handle the word of God. But it's not going to be your proficiency in arguing Scripture with people that's going to get them saved. Paul didn't say your ability to argue and convince people is the power of God to salvation. He said the gospel is the power of God to salvation. This is where the church has got to return to the truth that is this. This gospel is powerful. Not because it comes from men who can speak eloquently or have the right tone of voice or the right voice inflection. I mean, all that's great, you know. But the reality is you can have the best speaker with the best voice inflection and tone. It is Inherently, this word of God, this inspired word, the reality of who Christ is and what he has done, it is the preaching of the gospel that has the power to save men. It's not our arguments. Now, we need to know why we believe what we believe. And this is why, this is why I do what I do. I'm not here to convince unbelievers to trust in Christ. I'm here to help believers be better equipped and know why you believe what you believe. So you can go out there and you can give a reason for the hope that you have. And if you go out there thinking that those sinners are acting that way just because they're just don't have, you know, they're just doing that because they just want to be stubborn. No, honey, they're doing that because that's their nature. They don't have any choice. This is why Paul says, don't judge the world. God will judge the world. They're the world. But now, if we see a brother in sin, we don't judge him in a condemning way, but we go to him and say, hey, bro, you're confessing to be a believer, but your life ain't lining up here. Do we need to pray? Do we need to have a conversation? The problem is most Christians get offensive, and the first words out of their mouth, don't judge me. Jesus said, don't judge. Don't judge me. I ain't judging you. I'm loving you. The Scripture says, I'm not judging you. The Scripture says, I'm loving you. If I love you, if you're really my brother, I'm just going based on your confession. You're confessing to be a brother, so I'm going to come to you and I'm going to say, hey, bro, what's the deal? Can we pray? 
But now we need to go with meekness and humility, right? Not all haughty, not looking down our nose at them. That's not love. That's not restoration. That's judgment and condemnation. I mean, we want to overlook all the sin in the church and get angry at the world. It should be just the opposite. We ought to be calling the church on the sin that's there and trying to help bring them to restoration, not being angry at the world, but let's be a witness to the world. Let's love the way Christ loved. Let's love the family of God. Let's love those in the world that are still dead in their nature of sin and death and are behaving because they have no choice but to behave that way because the power of God has not transformed them yet. And the power of God will not and cannot transform them unless somebody is preaching the gospel. And this is why it's high time for the church to get back to preaching the gospel. We're not called to be a self-help organization. We're not here to promote people's happiness and prosperity and warm, fuzzy feelings. We're here to learn the gospel so we can live the gospel. Because only the gospel has the power of God to change a life. It was the gospel that changed me. It was the gospel that changed you if you've been changed. It is the gospel that continues to change you and transform you. And I submit to you, as long as you live on this earth in these flesh bodies, you will be being changed and transformed into the image of the Son. Amen? Amen. All right, we're going to pick back up in 1 Peter next week. Okay? Let's all stand.